This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. My name is Bill Kennedy, and our special guest today, all the way from Edmonton, Canada, is Melissa Trebel. Hello, Melissa. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. How's it going in Edmonton today? Good, good. It's nice out today. Nice. I, I love when somebody in the frozen tundra says it's nice out today. Nice as in, like, you don't have to wear gloves and a hat, or nice as in because I'm inside. <laughs> I hate being cold. <laughs> as in we're being treated to like, it's nice. Oh my goodness. You know, I went to university in upstate New York, up by the Canadian border. I was about a half an hour away from Cornwall. You know, Cornwall, Canada is one of those border towns over there. I had no idea how cold it was in university, so I had a little thermometer next to my bed. And if it got anywhere close to like freezing, I didn't get out of bed. Needless to say, I almost failed every class that first semester because by the time we hit like December, it was freezing every day. (laughs) But uh, I was. I was in Edmonton one time and I was pleasantly surprised by the weather there. It wasn't like terribly cold and it was a fun city actually, the university and everything there. So that's kind of cool. Do you enjoy living in Edmonton? I do. We've got a a beautiful river valley and we've got, you know, a lot of smart people in Edmonton. I think we've got a excellent tech community, which is always good too, right? Yeah, for sure. I, and I've gotten to meet, at least on the go side, uh, more than a handful of people there. So so anybody's thinking about moving to Canada, I know Edmonton is usually not on your list, but I think you got to check it out. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty cool city. Okay, so Melissa, this podcast is all about you. And so what, I, what I'd like you to do first is give everybody the one to two minute kind of background on what you're doing right now today. I've been in Edmonton my whole life, so I actually went to McEwen University for computer science, and I got a job straight out of university for TrustBix, and what we do is traceability in the agri-food, specifically in beef. Are you tracking, you're tracking beef from farm to table? That is the goal at the end of the day, yes. Um, it's not quite as simple as that because there's like a lot of information to track and it's not always shared, just like in the case of anyone who does traceability, right? It's simple to say you want to do it, not quite so simple all the time to get that information. We have a client named Food Logic that's trying to do some of the same same things. That not they're not specific just on beef, but when I first heard about this problem or the, the ability to track something like this, it was fascinating to me. With, so one of the goals was like, now you have a salmonella breakout on chicken somewhere, right? If you could trace it from farm to table, you wouldn't have to throw out as much chicken as maybe you do today. 
because you would know exactly what what chicken is really in in trouble right like that was interesting to me so you're trying to solve some of that problem too yeah some of that and also um adding value so like a really good example is what trustbix has been able to successfully do is in canada we have a few partners who are working together to add value to the beef supply chain and what we've done is we've partnered with cargill who supplies meat for mcdonald's and have actually been able to verify that some of their beef is sustainable and pay farmers additional for having sustainable beef. So having everybody benefit um, from the value added to the supply chain from traceability. Wow, what a, what a really fascinating, just the data gathering alone from the farm all the way through is interesting. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna get back to that. I, I think this is a cool, cool problem that you're working on there. Let's, I'm gonna put you in the time machine. We're gonna bring you all the way kind of back. And, and uh, what I'd like you to do is to start thinking in your memories here. What is the first time that you have, the first thought or memory you have working on a computer? Or even just maybe getting your hands on a computer? That would be uh, my parents bringing one home, I'm sure, just like everybody else, right? And um, yeah, it, it was a old, old compact. And because like I live rurally, there's not much you can do with it. Um, you know, with dial-up, dial-up, hope, hoping your mom doesn't get a call. So she's interrupting uh, what you're doing on it. So it's almost entirely messing around with Word um, and a little bit starting to dig into like websites and see how, see how they were built, finding out like you could actually look at the code directly in the websites and mess around with them. How old are you when they bring this computer home? Do you remember how old you are? I believe it was about 12 when we got our first computer in the house. Now, your parents brought that home because they, they had one at work or something. Do you remember the story behind the computer? Yeah, my parents had one at work. And uh, it was getting to the point, too, where the school was realizing, hey, computers are they're going to be important. So they're starting to teach just typing, actually, in class. They, they kind of let you have free reign for the rest of it. So like, OK, yeah, we teach typing. but because it's a rural school with like a bit less resources, they haven't actually structured what they want to do with it, but they do know, like to tell parents, like, you know, computers are definitely the future, right? So, uh, you know what I'm fascinated? I hear a few stories now where like the first thing you do in school is this typing class, which I never did typing. Like I, I still, I technically hunt and peck, right? Like I can type really fast with about three or four fingers, but it's not a, it's not like, what you were learning on typewriters. Like I used to watch my mom just go crazy on a typewriter. So were they teaching, when you're typing on a keyboard now, are you doing hunt and peck or you actually have the right mechanical, say sympathy with your fingers? Uh, no, I'd say it's a bastardization of the, the two. There, there's some keys <laughs> I've got down, but guaranteed there's hunt and peck happening. I mean, I don't have to look at the key, there are days where I don't have to look at the keyboard. Like, I just know it. And then some days I feel like I... But when you get on a keyboard that's a different light... So the Microsoft laptops, right, the, they kill me. I always hit the wrong keys on those. So I guess it's muscle memory on a keyboard. Yeah, and that's what they're trying to do, right? Because it's, we know technology is important, but we don't have the resources to teach anything. What can we teach that might be meaningful? Well... There's typing programs, so that's an easy easy way to teach 30 kids about computers when you don't have the resources, right? 
it's something at least. But you did that in a lab, like where they had the computers there, or you had to go home and do that? That would have been in a uh, computer lab. So it'd be, I think there is two labs of 30 computers that would have been shared between the whole school. And then after you did your typing exercises, I guess with some program, then you, you had kind of free reign to do what you wanted on those lab machines. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you have those computers in school, but you're probably only getting to spend an hour or so every other day or something on those, and then you have the one at home. Did your parents bring that computer home specifically for... Do you have siblings? Yeah. Are they older, younger? Uh, a big mix. I, uh, big I got mix. lucky. I, I got to sample everything because I'm, I'm the middle child, so... You're the middle child. My middle child daughter always says, I hate being in the middle child. Like, she hated being the middle child in the sense that, I guess, she got all the hand-me-downs, and then she's... I don't know. I, I mean, I, I was number one, first kid in my set of siblings, so you seem to be pretty happy about the middle child. It's, it's good and bad. I mean, it's a lot harder for the middle child to get in trouble because there's other people to blame, right? So, so my, I had three girls and two boys. So Mandy, who's the middle child technically of five, I would always say, but you're really, you're really like the last girl, right? Like really not in the middle because you're the, right? Like your other sister's in the one in the middle. Anyway, I would try, I'd try to do that. It didn't successfully work, but, but I tried. Wow, you're the first person who's really happy. Like, that's amazing to me. I want to almost explore that, but we don't have time. Okay, so, <laughs> so you have to compete for this computer at home then? I mean, you're in the middle, so you're, are you competing or no one else really cares about the computer at home? We all use it, so yeah, it, it was a shared computer, but um, really, even myself, like, I don't know a ton what to do with it, right? Like, oh, you can go on the internet and look stuff up. I, I think, like, we're using even Ask Jeeves at that point because Google wasn't, like, super huge. It's just, like, you know, everybody messing around trying to figure out what can we do with this thing. So then what year is this when we're talking about, I know I'm going to be aging you here, but t when you're 12, roughly, if you're talking about Google and all that, it must be two. Well, let's see, I graduated in 2019, which would be 18. Okay. So we pushed that back six years. Six years. Okay. So we're looking at, okay. So like 2013. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Google was like 2010, I think. So it was just getting started, but not not enough for us to like discover it naturally on our own, I guess, because I, re I remember using Ask Jeeves a ton. But are you playing more games or are you doing more sort of like you said, you, you were experimenting with websites and things like that? How are you spending that time? early on on the computer? Uh, mostly experimenting with websites. So we had dial-up, so when we did try and play games, it didn't end well. And, <laughs> and, and you know, so we were forced to use it more productively. I, I guess you could, say, you could say. All right, so what's, you remember what software you're using to build those? Are you using front page or you're, you're do you remember kind of how you're doing that? Just notepad or whatever the equivalent of notepad would have been at the. Wow the time so just saving and uh you know and editing stuff loading it up seeing seeing what happens see that puts you in a really good position because my kids even though they're not software developers they learned very quickly in high school that they could inspect a web page and edit everything and then like print that out or something and submit it i mean like they 
they I don't want to use the word cheated a few times, but <laughs> like you're like already developing that skill set. <laughs> Are you doing that with your siblings? You know, the web page and stuff. Or you're more no, like they solo? they weren't particularly interested in the uh, the web page stuff. Uh, let me, because this is more like so. I mean, what you're doing is technical. Were your parents technical? Logger slash farmer would be my dad and my mom would be just like office work. So she, she is exposed to the computer and saying like, hey, these are going to be important. And like, I need to make sure that my kids understand basic computer skills, but not at a technical level, right? Okay, right. But even in 2013, your dad as a farmer and all that, I mean, he's got to be doing, you think he's still using paper ledger back then too? Or are they starting to... No, start, you start, you, you're starting to get into the technical stuff, but stuff like... Um, Taxes is yeah, still all all paper form. Okay, so you're starting to like have this affinity for the computer there, and you're getting it to do the things that you want it to do. As those six years start to progress um, to the point where you're, like you're graduating, are you spending more and more time learning how to program, or are there are you what are the things you're doing? How does that how does that kind of progress up until you say graduate at 18? A little more, yeah. So in high school, which would be grades 10 through 12, pretty much like I used a lot of my optional courses. So we have like you can pick if you want to do like mechanics or computer or foods or whatever. I used up like a lot of my optional course time um, as like the, the computers program. So Bo, I don't even remember what they called it. I think it was like information processing or something. It was like a general course where like you could do word you could do excel and then they also had like the the programming and stuff so it was just kind of a here's all the things that are possible if you ask to do something that the teacher doesn't know we're gonna give you a massive book so like for example like when I when I started programming it was like just handed like this massive like three four inch thick c++ book and like how to code in c++ and the teacher just kind of like, have at her. Oh uh, my yeah. goodness. That, that I mean, was that's... the language of choice. And they give you exercises to work on? They tell you to write an algorithm that does this, write an algorithm that does that? Yeah, it so. was just out of a book that I, I assume was recommended by somebody. But the teacher was pretty frank. She's like, you know, if you get through the first few exercises, you know more than me, so... That's that's amazing. So they just basically said to her, you're teaching this class. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Find a book. So here's a book. And then you had a C++ compiler on those machines and you were able to type those. You remember what editor you were using back then? You, using like Notepad? I, I believe we did have Visual Studio, like a basic version okay. of Visual Studio for that. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. How many other kids were... Um, in this curriculum with you at the time? Was it was it a popular class or you're No, there was three others uh, that were specifically like messing around with the programming and they also did a little of uh, hardware certification. You were doing the hardware too? No, I decided not to do the hardware. I was more interested in the software, but that's that's funny. I, I did a lot of hardware until I was in a company where things started to break back in the early 90s and if you didn't have extra hardware you couldn't fix it 
And it drove me crazy because you had people on your back going, when is it going to work? When is it going to work? And I'm like, dude, I don't have the parts. And from that moment on, I said, I'm never doing hardware again. Because if it's software, then I can fix it, right? I, I don't have that stress. So is, what was it about the software that attracted you more than the hardware? Mostly, like, yeah, you get to see results right away, I think. Would be, and it feels like, honestly, less risky to dig in and mess with software than it does with hardware <laughs> um, at that time. You, you can break things, but it's pretty easy to fix things too uh, when you're at that level, anyhow. Did you enjoy coding in, in C++ at the time? I guess I, maybe looking back. You didn't I didn't think better. about it because that was, you know, my, my introduction to programming. So I'm like, okay, yeah, this is, this is what programming is. You, you can do some pretty sweet stuff with it, it seems. That's amazing to me. Like, I didn't even see C until like my junior year in university. It was like, started with basic, then we did Pascal. And then we got into, like, to me, C and C++ are, it's an advanced language. And they've got you already learning that by the time you're, like, 16, right? You're starting to already program in that. All right, let me ask you a couple other things here between the time you're 16 and 18. Are, are you interested in anything else? Or, or, what else are you doing to occupy time other than homework and, and coding? Uh, messing around with graphic design would be the other one. So all, all sorts of stuff. Um, in that. I, I tried some animation, found out I'm absolutely awful at claymation, so like, nope, that's <laughs> not, that's not happening. Yeah, a, a lot of uh, photography and messing around with like the graphic design, so getting into Photoshop, seeing what you can do with that. Um, a little bit of Flash websites, because you know, Flash websites are getting popular at that time. Uh, arguing with my classmates of whether or not Flash is viable website technology. <laughs> uh, that's smug like like as a high school i'm like no this isn't how you make websites i thought i knew everything turns out i was accidentally correct but probably probably not for the right, right reasons right i saw some amazing things done in flash at the time or at the height of it like people would uh, um assemble a car in this animation or something you know like some wild wild stuff did you have any of this software installed on the home computer were you able to do the C++, so that you were only at school? Yeah, it was entirely at school. Um, the teacher, though, for the graphic design stuff was really good. He was pretty much like, hey, it, as long as I'm in the room, because there's expensive equipment here, drop by and mess with stuff. So that meant like during lunch or after school or those types of things you can be in the lab? Exactly. But the home computer, essentially, you couldn't do a lot on. You really had to spend more of your time in... Yeah, it was mostly for like helping type up, you know, homework assignments, that kind of stuff. And yeah, oh. again, mucking around like with websites a little because you can always do that regardless of what machine you have, but not a ton else there. So you're not doing anything like sports or music or any other sort of curricular, extracurricular activity? Girl guides. So that would be a, a youth group essentially. Okay. And we do all, they do all sorts of things. So, you know, we do camping, you do volunteer work, you, you learn about like doing speeches, just like a general like life skills. That was something outside of school. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. That's, no, that's, that's really cool stuff. So 
you're about to graduate, right? And you're, it sounds like you're spending as much time as you can with the computer to the extent that you can get into the lab and stuff. So as you're starting to think about what's next after the secondary school here, what are you thinking? You're thinking university or are you thinking, like, what's going on in your head as you're about to graduate? I was thinking university, but um, quite nervous because I didn't know uh, who to talk to about, de about development. And there's always that attitude that um, you, you want to do a career that's worthwhile, right? Especially like in rural, like you get it, get an education that pays, right? Well, does programming pay? Can I, can I sustain myself with it? So I was definitely nervous about that, but I got lucky and my mom actually talked to her coworkers about it. And I had the excellent opportunity to talk to one of their daughters who was actually working for HP at the time as a developer. So she called me up and I think she'd be one of the first people who yeah actually talked to me about what programming was as a career, which was huge. She was an absolutely fascinating woman. We spent like three hours on the phone. That was amazing of her to do. Who introduced you to her again? Was it your mom or somebody at the school? Uh, my mom. So it was her coworker happened to have a daughter who okay. worked for HP. Okay. And, but not there in Edmonton. It must have somewhere. No, she, she must have been in the States or something. I didn't think to ask as a kid, actually. Do you remember some of the questions you asked her during that kind of, and I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but like, I'm kind of curious, you spoke to her for like three hours, like, what was, do you remember some of the conversation that you had, or what, what's the most memorable aspects of that conversation? Yeah, so essentially just, what do you do, because at that point I had like the concept, like, okay, programming's this thing you can do to make computers work. And that, that, was, that was about it, right? You do stuff with it. Okay, yeah, but what do you actually do? And she sat down, she talked to me about her day and I actually finding out like, hey, there's all this stuff that like I've never even thought about that um, runs on software, right? Like the traffic lights, like, well, the, the whole world essentially runs on software, right? So, uh, it was quite mind-boggling at that time, just just how big it was and how much different potential there is uh, to work there, work and stuff. And the other thing too was, you know, just just some issues surrounding women in tech, because that's like always a bit nervous, you know. Um, all all those classmates were all boys, so it's like, well, how how do you connect to other women in in tech, and what is the environment like? Because even though I've never experienced it, it is always in the back of your mind that there could be uh, issues around being the only woman in the workplace, right? So. Did she talk to you about that? Did So she talked to you about her experiences there at HP with that? Yeah. But was she talking to you in terms of just, I, I imagine the conversation was more about not to discourage you away from it, but just to be kind of prepared for it? Or? To be aware of it, right? Because any workplace, I think, where you're going to get heavily dominated in one gender, male or female. There's always going to be perceptions and biases against the people who are the minority, right? But you weren't experiencing that 
in school already in the lab. That's and one of the questions, you know, you said there were like three other people that were really focused. Had you experienced any of that up until that point? No, not really. Like just a typical high school clickiness, right? But I, I think the main thing I'd noticed was just there weren't many people interested in it. And at the time I like just put it down to like, I mean, there weren't any many people interested. Anyhow, there was four people in the entire school doing this, right? So. Was there any ever, was there ever a conversation about you working on the farm or was that the option? What were your parents kind of guiding you towards? Were they guiding you towards university in this? I'm, I'm sure you had this conversation with them. Yeah, university for sure. Um, kind of caveat in the background, like, you know, make sure it's something that pays. So I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. Like there's still like kind of that assumption that like don't get an arts degree because you're just funding the science and business students. So there'd definitely be the assumption, like probably not an arts degree. You want something, something you can support yourself with, right? I think all parents, I want, you know, I, I have five kids. I think all parents kind of want to make sure that their kids can support themselves at some point, right? I mean, like as a parent, you're, you, you think oh, I'm not going to be here forever and there isn't necessarily generational wealth you're going to leave and you just want to be able to relax knowing that they can generate an income that will kind of support their lifestyle. I think that's where it comes from, right? But I think it's also important to kind of balance out, do what you want to do because money doesn't bring happiness, money's convenience. You know, happiness comes from family and other things. So I struggle with it, right? So I can appreciate your parents say, you know, do something that's going to help generate income. Yeah. And it's difficult, like, because some of the stuff like arts, the career path is like a little more nebulous, right? It's like, okay, well, you get an art degree. Now, what do you do? Not, not all of them are necessarily going to lead you directly to, um, you know, a paying, paying job. Like you can't connect A to B directly, but they're, they're still going to benefit you. Right. So I am sure that makes parents, especially a lot more nervous. But you were already kind of interested in this kind of field, and you now know that you can make money in it. You, you, you've talked to somebody. Your parents know that. So they must be fairly relieved that you're going to move in this direction. Yeah, exactly. Glad to know that I'm going to do something that I can take care of myself, right? I'm just curious, your other siblings, um, what did they end up kind of doing? Did they have any of them? I'm just kind of curious. What, where, where your other siblings ended up? Uh, yeah, one tried welding for a bit, and then eventually they got into the oil industry. Um, we're, we're in Alberta, right? So oil's always big. There's always jobs there. So that's what they went into. Uh, one is a teacher. Uh, one went into logging with my dad. So he, you know, kind of helped him, like, learn the equipment and stuff initially, and that's what he does now. And the last one, the youngest, she's still figuring out what she wants to do, but she actually works in construction, building modular homes right now, and is really, really enjoying it. So looking to see if she can apprentice with somebody there to, you know, get more into carpentry or, or something rather than just the basic building bits. That's amazing, right? Everybody, I had five kids and they're all different. And I try to imagine like if I had another five kids, they're all going to be different too. And I can't think of the diversity. I, I can't even imagine how all, all the different things. And so each one of you really kind of went in your own sort of direction. 
Okay, so it sounds like you talked to this this um, woman engineer from HP. I, that must have solidified you to now say I'm going to go into university. Yeah, yeah. What you, you apply to university? What happens next? Um. Well, I get in obviously, and it's uh, it's actually like really exciting to be suddenly around all these people that share your interests and have these professors as a resource, like people who know, um, yeah, people who know, right? But also people who can like look at what you're doing and say, hey, you're doing this wrong and show you like a better way to do it. Like that was, uh, I think the most exciting thing. There's people around who could like look at what you're doing and say, hey, you're wrong. Now let's do this better. So you, a couple of things then. So you apply, how many universities did you apply to? Or is it one, two, a few, or? Yeah, just two. Um, the University of Alberta and then Grant McEwen. And which one did you end up going to? I ended up going to Grant McEwen. Was that a school where you stayed there on campus or you commuted? Yeah, I stayed on campus. There was a residence uh, right across. That's right, because that's, I remember that, like, that's super exciting, right? You finally get out of your parents' house, you're going to be on your own. Now you're surrounded by, like you said, people that are, but that, is that an engineering school? Like, I was the only one of my group of friends that were, was doing computers. One was psychology, another one was music, another one was, right? So you're still around a diverse group of people. Yeah, you're still around a diverse group of people. There's just, I mean, my standards for more aren't super high either, right? But. There's more people in a class of 20 people now instead of in a class of five. And you still have to do your liberal arts work there, right? So you're, you're, you're mixing. Do you remember what one of your first couple of computer classes were that first? Yeah, just introduction to computer science again in C++. C++. So out of the box, first class, you're doing C++, which you're prepared for, which I bet you a lot of your classmates weren't prepared for that as much as you were. I assumed everybody knew a lot more than me a little bit, and I was surprised to a certain extent how basic the uh, the initial course was. Because, like, obviously, it's it's an introductory course, so you have to learn like the, the syntax of the language, right? And you already had it because you've been doing this for a couple of years already. Yeah. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the schooling too, because what I've heard from others is when they already have a bunch of experience going into university. Uh, definitely the first year or two of university for the computer stuff can be really boring and sometimes it becomes so boring that you kind of lose interest. So talk about the first couple of years of, um, were you feeling challenged? Was it just coming easy to you? Like, talk about that. Did you ever lose your excitement for being a software developer? I didn't because like the professors there are really great and would like, you know, if they see somebody is obviously like, this is easy. They, they would talk to you and say, hey, why don't you try this? Like, it's not part of your coursework, but why don't you try this? Because, you know, you're, you're paying for the course and they, they want to keep you engaged. I think the other great thing that like McEwen's low level courses did is like, so the introduction to computing, like, yeah, they did have you know, basic C++ programming, but they also took some time to say, hey, why don't we teach you like some basics of assembly using like a simulated assembler 
they had, right? So there's still stuff to learn. How many other women were there in your, um, I guess, in your class at that point, that first year? First year, quite a bit more um, because computer science is allowed to be a substitute for math or for a language course at McEwen. Mm. So you're going to be getting like a whole bunch of like diverse people coming in, trying it, saying like, hey, maybe instead of French, I'll take some computer science, right? (laughs) (laughs) But um, so yeah, quite a few, it dropped off really quickly. So the 100 levels, it was probably a 50-50 split as soon as it went to the 200 levels. So the second level of courses, it was probably closer back to that like 20%. So in a, in a class of like 20 people, you'd have like probably two other girls. I could tell you back in, by the time I graduated university in 91, maybe there were 30 people in the, I mean, it was a small school. So maybe there were 30 people doing computer science. I think there's only one woman She's still one of my very closest friends from university. I never even even thought about that, right, until I think as I started kind of focusing on diversity here with with Go. Um, and I've never even asked her about that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a shame, right, that the numbers are that fine. But you never, did you ever start to feel in university some of the things that that woman from HP was telling you about? There were, uh, yeah, a, a few people who were, issues and you started seeing that um you know a lot of times you set it aside because you don't want to put it down to that and there are strong-headed people in the industry too but yeah again it's always in the back of your mind is like is it because of this reason right um the professors there were all great though if they even suspected something it would be shut down immediately so tell me what you Tell me what which class you hated the most in the computer science side, and then which one you enjoyed or felt like you got the most out of. I'm going to go with the one I liked the most first, because I can think of that right off the top of my head. <laughs> it was the introduction to AI, and we went through probably like five different machine learning languages. So um, just like the different ways of thinking, like trying to, to, to code in like Prolog, for example, going from like the, the C++ mindset to like using a declarative language like Prolog to try and solve basic problems was frustrating, but but fun at the same time. It was tons and tons of fun. You know, it's funny, you're bringing back memories for me from computer science. I had one class where it was like, you were gonna learn Lisp and Prolog and I don't know, another three languages. And they, they constantly had us almost write the same, like the Towers of Hanoi. Write that in Prologue. Write that in, in all these other languages. To the point where I just started finding books that had the algorithms already written because I was like, I don't want to fight through this. Like, just show, right? Which is what we do today in the industry, right? Like, let me find, somebody's must have done it already. Let me, let me see if I can find it. Were you ever doing any of that where you're just like, okay, I know this has been done a thousand times. Let me just go look for for a solution. I'll, and then maybe I'll make it my own. A, a little, yeah, especially with the the prologue. I gave up on that one. I like the lisp. The lisp I could do. The, the prologue challenges you to think a lot differently than you want to um, compared to com- traditional computer science, right? So yeah, definitely. I like I 
am not getting this. I'm going to see what somebody who does has done. Those languages, Prologue and Lisp, I, I had no affinity towards them. I always felt like, and they're not toy languages, but I always felt like these were academic sort of languages that existed just to be the, the bane of my existence, right? Like, I was never ever going to use these languages to write any sort of commercial software. So why are you doing this other than to punish me, right? <laughs> That's my problem, is that I, I've, I've always been practical. So I've never been high on like the academic side of, of a lot of things. If it's not practical, I almost just would, would turn off, right? Which, is, which isn't good. Because in your computer science degree, you need a balance of both. But I, I do remember having some of the same feelings about those languages. I just had a hard, and I had a hard time with recursion when I started. That was one thing with Lisp. It forced me to learn recursion because if you're not doing recursion, you're not writing Lisp, right? Yeah, I'll tell you, it took me probably well after university to finally wrap my head around. Now I can think about it, right? Like, I don't have to think about it, right? It, it takes time. Programming is all time and practice. But I remember struggling with recursion. I, I couldn't believe. So I, I didn't do well with those languages. What was the, so that was what you enjoyed, right? Yeah. Uh, the one I have to say I liked the least was the security course, actually, unfortunately. Because, well, security is extraordinarily dry. It's important, but it is extraordinarily dry. The word security is almost a buzzword for me at this point because it encompasses so many different things depending on the context that you're talking about, right? Some of it is even beyond beyond my head too sometimes. So when, when I, this is insecure, that's unsecure, and I'm always like, why? Like, what is it that you saw or what did you find? So this particular security, were they focusing on like programming side of things like memory buffer overruns or were they more around architecture like what were they focusing on uh it was like a general study course to get you a broad overview of it so we did look at like you know like that classic article smashing the stack for profit um and looking at like buffer overruns and stuff so basic secure coding but the other thing is too is like starting to look at security tools so it's like how do you tell if your application is insecure and what can you use to help you find that out. So you took a bunch of liberal art classes as well. And I think this happens to everybody. It happened to me with anthropology. At some point I thought, I love this anthropology class. How cool would it be to just be out in the field digging, digging and doing this sort of research? Was there any sort of non-computer class that you really enjoyed to the point where you started to like think maybe if this computer thing doesn't work out, I'll, I'll become an anthropologist? <laughs> Political science. I, oh. I love political science, especially the, probably like the more historical aspect of it is, you know, why are the politics the way they are? And what's the historical con context of, around why we talk the way they are, we do, or just why, right? Why does somebody speak the way they do? And is that really um, their intent? Or is this just needed for the world stage, right? So did you take a bunch of political science to the extent that you could, I guess, when you were in university? A lot of my free classes were political science. I probably could have almost done it as my minor if I wanted to, but I ended up not, not, not using it as my minor. Did you have a minor? Yep. 
What was your, what, then what did you minor in? Sociology, actually. Study, like Pete, I think that's brilliant. Like, like being able to understand people. I think it's one of my hidden talents is I can look at somebody and feel it out. And I'm usually accurate, I would say, up to about 90% about what's, which you, you must be able to do if you're going to have empathy for people, right? So what was it about the sociology and what did you learn there in that minor? You know, it's the same thing as uh, as the political science, like the, the why around it. But also, I think, you know, like like high schools and stuff, they have like such little time to cram so much information. Whereas like you go into sociology and you're like, okay, well, now I can learn about these issues specifically that I want to focus on. So... Like, for example, like you can learn about inequality and like the labor laws in, in Canada and the states and the historical con context about that and why somebody coming from that background might be defensive um, when you're speaking to them, right? Let me ask you then, because it sounds like you're very much like me. Like, I'd like to understand the origin of things. I'd like to understand the why, because that helps later on for you be able to make better judgments and, and process information. Were you finding yourself digging into the computer science side of the why as well? Yeah. Yeah. So the the same thing, like lots of Googling and trying to find out the uh, history around a lot of it. I, that would be a cool class to have um, something more historical focused on computer science. I don't think it'd be a popular class, unfortunately. But it would be a good grounding, especially to talk about some of the the people who pioneered the things we take for granted every day. Yeah, I bet you'd be fascinating to learn the problems they solved. And like, especially if you could find out like, hey, they had to deal with this and they just kind of, you know, BS their way through it with this like really weird, obscure fix because that's what you do sometimes um, when you need to fix something, right? It's like, it works for now. Let's make it better after. And, and I think like, if we could hear about stories like that from people we consider brilliant, like it would, it'd be like a huge help. I'm going to send you a link to the Go Training reading material that I have. I have a whole section just titled History. There's probably 10 or 15 articles there that are really fascinating in terms of uh, the history of kind of computing. So I'm going to send that to you because those were amazing articles. But I was in Huntsville, Alabama one day, and I was at the, um, the NASA facility where you can do a tour, and I was underneath the Saturn V rocket, and there's this old guy, he must have been like 80-something years old, in a lab coat, and I walk over to him, and I start talking to him, and he tells me that he was literally a rocket scientist back in the day when they were building these rockets, and he said, we had no idea what we were doing, none whatsoever. We were just experiment and try things until eventually we got things that were working. So it's exactly in line with what you're saying, right? Like you can't really know what you're doing because it's all new, all new field, all new concepts, materials, everything. Yeah, exactly. As you're about to graduate university, right? What year are we talking? What, what year did you graduate university? 19, you said? I did say that. That's completely wrong. <laughs> 2015. <laughs> okay, you graduated university 2015. Okay. So as you're about to graduate university with your major degree in computer science, you have your minor in sociology, 
you're loving political science, you decide that you want to join the government, right? <laughs> what, do you, what do you do next? Yeah, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So honestly, I just randomly started applying for jobs. There was no focus on that whatsoever. I was like, I'm going to apply for jobs. Once I, once I get a job, start getting experience, then I'll figure out what I'm doing. Was the plan to move back home or to stay out of the house no matter what? No, the, the plan <laughs> was to stay out of the house because at that time, like I hadn't even considered remote work as a possibility. So if I was going to get a job, it was going to be in the city. Okay. So how many, do you remember how many jobs you applied to and, and did you end up with a job right before you graduated or was it sometime after? I, I probably applied to like 10, 15 and I got a job pretty much immediately after I graduated um, with Trust Mix. Yeah, the reason I actually got the job is because of my agricultural background primarily. So being able to like understand the the soft part of that, as well as the coding bit, was what ended up landing me that job. And the agricultural stuff came from growing up with your dad on the with the farming, right? Yeah, exactly. Because when when you have a farm, you know, um, and everybody works, it's just sometimes you have to help out, and like you're just exposed to it too, right? Because the animals are around you you watch what's happening so you, you have a bit better understanding of what that process is i mean okay so you interviewed a bunch of places did you end up having did a bunch of places want to want to hire you at the time yeah i had a choice between trustix and a company that was building a realtor site to help realtors pretty much like assess homes and like make mm. sales i think you chose the right industry <laughs> I would have made the same decision you made. I, I did real estate stuff for like four years. It's, and that industry is so up and down too. That, and what you're doing is kind of a new industry, really. I, I, I mean, I, I know this kind of te tech has been trying to be built for about a decade, but I still think it. There's not a lot of competition in this space, right? Yeah, I think traceability is really new, and like. Emphasis has been put on it now, I'm sure you've seen with COVID. Well, now traceability is mattering a lot more and people are thinking about it a lot more. So it's going to accelerate probably. So you've been with this company for five or six years. What, what was the first kind of assignment that you had and what, what was the technology stack at the time? Uh, making a single page web application. Uh, to go in front of the web API um, to collect pretty much any of the data from, from farms. So like animal births, uh, vaccinations, that sort of thing. Uh, and at the time we were, we were looking to see what there was. We actually considered Angular, but then the Angular, AngularJS split happened and we weren't sure if it was stable so that scared us away from Angular at the time, and we ended up with something that looked a little more stable, which was uh, Knockout.js. And the first thing I wrote was, yeah, a single page application, uh, almost entirely uh, supported by Knockout.js, and like a, a few CSS frameworks to make it simpler, but pretty raw. We didn't use much like anything like Bootstrap or anything. But this is all new tech. You weren't using any of this tech in university. I mean, you did a lot of C and C++. So 
How did you like JavaScript at the time and HTML and CSS? Did you? I, I have no affinity towards it. In fact, I'm so bad with that stuff, I'm not even allowed to go near the designers in my own company. That's how bad it is, okay? And if Eric, who's hearing me right now, wanted to talk to you about really bad CSS design, yeah, he's shaking his head. Then you could look at my uh, CSS, because <laughs> he would look at it and just cry. And JavaScript was such a dynamic language that you can get in so much trouble with it. So what were you thinking about those languages and that tech after leaving university, right? Because it, I mean, I know you'd seen some of it when you were younger, but do you enjoy that work? Did you not enjoy it? Was it good, bad? Like, where's your head on that? Uh, I'm, I'm like you. I'm not a UX designer. My, my UX was very utilitarian. You, you could do what you needed to do. It was by no means beautiful. I can guarantee it was by no means beautiful. I just, you know, Follow, follow the rule of thirds and other mathematical rules uh, when having to design it looking somewhat good. So uh, definitely not big on the HTML. Um, it's, you know, it serves its purpose. It, it does what it has to do and it does describe um, what you need to do well. JavaScript is kind of scary because like you said, it's dynamic and it does not have um you know when you're not using like the new es6 we were using es5 so it doesn't have classes it doesn't have like in typescript the type checking or like you're not using a framework like react that also does type checking for you so there was a lot of mistakes and a lot of learning how to code more defensively Oh, yeah, yeah. Were you, and you were coding that on your own, or you were working with a team of people at the time on that project? Uh, almost entirely on my own for that. So we were uh, a pretty small team of three people. So one person was entirely the, the back end, were doing their thing, and weren't particularly interested in doing anything else. What was the back end being written in, the, the web APIs being written in? C Sharp at this time. Let me ask you a couple other questions. So this UI was for data entry essentially. So you were asking what the farmers to do the data entry. There was no way to automate the collection of that data at the time. Uh, yeah, there's pretty much no way to automate it. There is some information we can, you can get from the government because in Canada, reporting births of animals is mandated. So if that information has already been provided to the government, we'd be able to pull it down and populate some other list for them, right? Like if they'd been reporting animals for five years, well, we could pull that, those five years worth of historical data to help them a little. But it's still up to the, at this time at least, it's not mandatory, like the government's not regulating it where you have to do this data entry, right? You're, the farmers are doing it because they want to do it or they want to be a good citizen. Uh, in, in Canada, you have to report animal births. All That's the it. other data entry is optional, yes. And that is, yeah, a major um, challenge to traceability just in agri-food in general. There's a lot of stuff that's not mandated. So you, you need a third party you can trust to track it all because you don't want to share information with everybody. But you also need to add value, right? Which is where that initiative I talked about at the beginning where like, okay, well, if farmers do this, we can prove their beef is sustainable and we can pay them 
you're you're gonna get more data in the system than just asking them to do it out of the goodness of their hearts, right? You have to create an incentive for them to spend that time doing it. I see, I see. So I guess I'm, I'm going to assume that that application got out into the field. You got it in production. Now, once you're doing that, I, I, I know that you're a, I mean, today you're a back-end developer, right? I mean, you're really focusing on back-end. So how did you make that transition from building these front-end sort of data-gathering websites to, to moving into the back-end? How did, how did that happen? The back-end developer quit. <laughs> small team well we need somebody to do it right so so you jumped into the c sharp which again is another brand new language so and that it's a big language too so if you're not minimum using a minimal set of it that code can be a little complex so what were your thoughts on the c sharp at the time that you saw it, it yeah it was intimidating there's a lot that's been added to c sharp over the years and you can't do like you can't do anything without knowing five other things is is what it feels like now i coded in c sharp for 10 years and i always use the bare minimum of the language because of that right like you can really get sucked into feature sets and so you jump into the back end code and you start to take care of all the web apis now right and you start working on database what database or you use, or I guess you're still using, is it like Postgres, is it something? Uh, we use Postgres now for our Go stuff, but for that, I mean, classic NetStack using Microsoft SQL Server, right? Because it's integrated right in. So that's, so this is where I wanna to get to, because I know you from being a Go developer, and you're telling me that you're jumping into a C-sharp API stack. So talk to me about, how you and or the company start to switch, I'm assuming off of C-sharp or is it new development? How, how does that happen? How does Go come up in the conversation and how do you start working with Go? So the, the C-sharp was essentially our legacy system. It came from another company and then we just rewrote it in the same language uh, for simplicity, all of the new stuff was primarily written in Go, unless we needed to deal with generics. Um, just simply because like learning Go, uh, writing generics in Go uh, can be quite intimidating and easy to do wrong, right? So as we well, added new stuff, we did more and more. But who made that decision to stop using C Sharp? I mean, like, I'm kind of curious from the engineering side, how that conversation was it your boss that said, no, we're going to start moving Go? Was there something that you did, like, kind of interested in how you make that transition off of C-sharp to Go and the conversation? Yeah, so it was my boss, uh, the chief technology officer at the time, said, hey, let's start looking at Go and seeing what it's good for. And then, yeah, pretty much every time we started a new application, we're like, okay, can we do this in Go? Or is there a pressing reason to do it in C sharp? Because we found like it was just much much easier to code. It's quicker. It's simpler. When you were first told to learn this new programming language and you started looking at Go, I got a couple of questions here. 
What were your initial thoughts about the language, and then what 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 resources were you using to kind of get up to speed to start building essentially production level web APIs that you were building originally in C sharp? Yeah, so the very first would be the Go Playground. It's you know it's great. You you know the language pretty much after you've used it. You might not know all the patterns and idioms, but because Go is so simple, like if you go through the playground, you know the language. The uh, next thing would be Go for sizes. That that one also is just like a great resource. And then yeah, starting to look at what podcasts are available to like start to see, you know, what people should I be looking at? So actually one of the first podcasts I listened to and one of the first people I listened to, which I never told you this, was the Go Time podcast. And that was one of the episodes you were on actually. So so starting to use stuff like that to find names, to find out who has been developing and who knows how to develop. And then you know, beginning to read their blogs and stuff because there is no experience on the team. You can take, you know, some of your experience from building systems, but not all of it. What was your initial impression, kind of the language after a couple of days of, of learning and working with it? I was excited. It was so simple. That, that was my impression is this is so simple. It lets you do what you want to do without clutter, right? So you can show what you're doing right there is uh, what Go feels like a lot to me. It's very succinct and it's very clear. It's e it forces you to write that way, I guess I should say. It just felt, it felt comfortable to you. It felt like intuitive. It felt like you were, it felt like home. <laughs> I'm really curious because this is something that I'm focusing on now well, I have been for a couple of years, and, and it's going to continue to be my focus, which is you can learn the syntax, you can learn the idioms, you can learn all the micro-level engineering that, that we talk about, data semantics and all that. And, and it's important to learn it, and I teach it, and, and, and there you are. But when you actually go to sit down and build a service out, there's a lot that goes into it, from project structure to how you want to handle logging and configuration. It's, it's essentially the service class, and I've... I've got a repo out there that kind of lays out the way I engineer these things, right? Production level engineering. But if there's no real ultimate guide to this. So when you had to start actually building out endpoints and start building that, was there any, any frameworks that you were looking at or, or, or patterns or project structures or you were just taking what you saw in C Sharp and I'm kind of really curious, the, from an engineering perspective, what decisions you made kind of early on in terms of those things, and, and then maybe where you are today. Yeah, um, early on, for sure, the C-sharp project structure, um, especially like in .NET, you know how they structure the, the classic like MVC app. They like scaffold it all and stuff for you already. And that was definitely what we leaned towards initially is just we know this, it works, let's, uh, let's try and organize stuff um, that way. It didn't work, uh, we found, personally. So we, we did end up like, yeah, learning and like a lot of thinking about how to organize stuff and a lot of reorganizing stuff. But we found um, 
in Go, it almost like your organization grows organically, almost based off of like how you you'll uh, you'll kind of organically naturally get sections that can be divided out into their own distinct groups. And trying to do it prematurely can get you in trouble sometimes. So I ran into it took me I'm I'm took me four or five years I think to really understand how to structure projects and go and what I call package-oriented design. How to really think about packaging in terms of an architecture and a design for software. We're, we're not taught these things in university, right? Everything's a big monolithic kind of code base. So um, I think everybody goes through that same exact struggle, but the ability to refactor as you learn more is critical. It sounds like you were able to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's huge because yeah, you find out it doesn't work. Well, okay, let's see see where our divisions are and try it a different way, right? So you've been at this company for like six years now. I mean, that's a long time to be in one place. So is the team still small? Has it gotten bigger? I have to imagine you're like a senior engineer over there right now, considering you've been there that long and you know the industry. Um, how has the team evolved since the time that you started there? It's, yeah, it's still pretty small. We've added one person. Um, they also bring in contractors to help because uh, the company is a startup and it's at the point where it's still trying to figure out how it wants to grow. So sometimes it's easier, right, to like have contractors rather than full-time staff. Right, right. Okay. Is there any other kind of tech that you're looking at over there, Art? Are you running your production systems in like Kubernetes? Is it, are you attached to a cloud? I'm kind of curious architecturally some of the decisions you made. Uh, Azure right now, but I actually don't manage any of our deployments. Mm. So I think that was probably just entirely made just because there is some of that legacy around being like a Microsoft stack. And like, you know, Microsoft sucks people in. Microsoft's very good at sucking people in. I was on a Microsoft stack for 20 years, and, and, I, and I eventually broke free. I love that you're not necessarily involved with the production systems. I think it's better, overall, I think it's better to separate those concerns with different people. I've always found more success, but because teams and companies want to move faster, they tend to have teams manage their own production environments. What are your thoughts on that. Do you wish you had more control over production? Are you happy not having any control over it? Uh, I'm happy not having control over production. I'd like to, like, obviously, like, I like, I'd like to know about that because, like, there's stuff around, like, you know, DevOps that would be very useful to know um, around that. And that's definitely something I need to know more about. Right now, we kind of, like, run our test stuff locally on Docker containers but being able to like you know do that maybe remotely or like change how that's done i think would be extraordinarily handy and understanding like a production environment too like you're going to maybe code differently or develop differently like th there's a lot of things i think around production that you can learn just from knowing it right do you have a staging environment or you just go from your local laptop to push in code and it gets deployed. We do yeah. have a staging environment. Um, I don't have control over that either. I think that's probably what I'd like control over. 
or another staging environment for uh, developers specifically, right? Yeah, I think you should have control over staging, and I think you should. I think that there should be at least a semantic understanding of the production environment because how can you architect your services and the things properly to be sympathetic with how they run in production if you don't really know how things run in production? I, I would find that to be challenging. Yeah, so we get bugs that are sometimes interesting to reproduce, right? You got to think, and you're like one stage removed from it. Um, sometimes asking questions to somebody who's also one stage removed because they're removed from the code. So you're not communicating in the same language all the time. So it'd be nice to have a little bit of ability to bridge the gap there, right? So you're full, you're, you're basically full heads down go developer day in, day out, right? I mean, that's your primary. Yeah, that's what a lot of what we've been doing. We still do do C sharp though. Um, there's always legacy stuff, right? So, how hard is it? Remember, like Go swapped the Go goes from variable name to type, where most languages do type variable name. I remember when I was switching over to Go, I would make the mistakes not in the Go code. I'd make them on the C sharp side because variable name type just actually feels more natural. So, how many times are you going back into C sharp and? struggling with syntax. Oh yeah, I'm writing things wrong. I almost never remember to like put the brackets in a for loop, for example. <laughs> I never, and I'm like, why isn't this working? <laughs> because it's you're hard. writing it wrong, yeah. It's, it's I, I found it not so hard going from Go, if I was doing some front end, to JavaScript, because the tooling was a little different, right? So your brain could kind of operate a little differently for whatever reason, but when I was going back from Go to C Sharp, it was, I had six months of it, and it was, God, it was complicated for my head. Yeah, it's hard hard to do both spaces at once, I find, because they're just a different mindset when you're coding, it feels like, between the two languages. Uh, C Sharp is very formal. Go, it feels like you can focus on what you're doing more a lot of times and doing stuff correctly, right? So. Is there any other programming languages right now that you wish you had, or maybe you are learning, or wish you had time to learn or incorporate? Is there anything right now that you're kind of looking at that's interesting to you? I think I'd like to sit down and look at Rust a little, um, just because just people are talking about it and they're pushing it. Um, and also just because I want to understand, like, a lot of people like comparing Go and Rust, right? And I don't know why, because like I haven't used Rust at all. So I would like to sit down and see why those comparisons are made and like where the strengths of each language are, um, where those arguments are valid. And you can't really do that without digging into it a little, right? And uh, I played, I think, for an hour with Rust at one point, and the syntax is so foreign. My brain went, oh my god, I have to learn a whole new syntax. Then I have to learn all new semantics. I have to, I mean, it's it's going to take time. So again, you got to kind of find a project that maybe fits best with Rust. But it's a, it's another interesting looking one, um, especially if the two are going to be brought up in conversation a lot together, right? So what about any of the functional Scala, Haskell? Have you thought looked at any of that stuff? Not at the moment, no. Yeah, I think I had my fill of functional programming for a bit after 
Less, less. That's true. That's good for good, good. I've never really looked at those languages either. Um, there was a time where everybody was talking about them, um, but I haven't really looked at them either. So as we kind of come to a close here, I'm really kind of curious. I'm, I'm curious of a few things. What are you doing? Are you doing anything? What do you do to kind of decompress right now? Because you can't be working 24 hours a day, right? Like you're not doing that. So what are you doing to kind of just maybe disconnect from tech uh, on a weekend or during the week? Or is there anything fun that you're doing there? Oh, I'm really lucky. I live right next to Edmonton's beautiful River Valley. So I can just, you know, go down there, bike, go for a run uh, whenever I want to. So uh, it's getting colder now. So I gotta, gotta bundle up, but hopefully I can keep going. Um, and yeah, just wandering the paths and trying to get from point A to point B, uh, solely through the valley. Cause the valley, you can get a lot of places in Edmonton without actually going into neighborhoods. You enjoy that out the little bit of that outdoor life. I have friends and I have a friend in Alaska who kind of grew up doing it. A couple of people I've met in Canada who kind of are attracted to that outdoor. I, I mean, I've always lived in the big cities, so it's not been really a part of my life. Yeah, I do. That's, I think, one thing I miss a lot about being in the city is just, you know, like really you could just go out into the bushes and be alone. You're, you're never more than like probably 50 meters away from a person in the city. There's always people. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so last question here. What, you're, you're, you're still like new in your career here as an engineer. Um, what would you, where's your head at in terms of where you see yourself in another maybe three, and this is an impossible question, but like three to five years, is there something specific that you'd really, you hope to be doing more that you're not doing now or something new that you're not doing now? Is there anything that you're kind of looking at towards maybe in the next three to five years? I want to actually get in a position where I can be a better mentor, I think. So like there's, there's a lot of stuff I got to learn before I can do that. But yeah, I think my end goal would be focus more on like mentoring and like watching people develop their skill sets, hopefully get better than me. Um, yeah, I, I want to, I want to be a mentor eventually. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like. If it's going to be like as a staff developer or. Have you heard of exorcism.io? I have not. Okay. That's where, that's where you can kind of start developing those skills. And we've got a whole go track and we're looking for people that can be mentors. So there's a bunch of kind of programming exercise people do and then they, then the community comes back with feedback. So that might be something really perfect for you to kind of start with that. Yeah, Just, I think that would be great to look at. Yeah, we'll add that to the show notes as well. And, and GoBridge just helped fund some of that as well for the GoTrack. So I think Exorcism, and I think that's a great goal um, because at the end of the day, especially as you become more and more senior, your role is gonna be bringing in people who are a little less senior than you and, and mentoring them. Have you thought at all about maybe eventually getting on stage or talking at meetups or sharing, sharing in that way? 
eventually, yeah, I think I, I need to practice that a lot more, but I think it's important, especially um, having visible women in tech, because yeah, it just it eliminates nervousness. And as a woman, there's always like, you know, some career concerns that, that um, aren't necessarily considered as a man. So having people visible um, to talk to about that is important too, right? Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so my last question is for all of the, may I say, women engineers that are listening. Is there any Two things. Is there any advice you'd want to give them, especially if they're early on in their career, and and kind of if you could go back and talk to yourself five or six years ago, <laughs> what would you tell yourself? I think I'd say like you know, um, don't don't be afraid to reach out because there there are people out there who can share their experiences. Uh, and the other thing is is like there's a lot of great people in tech who you know, wanna wanna teach and they wanna help. So don't be afraid to ask questions or just be intimidated just because you are a woman in a male dominated field. Like you're gonna meet some assholes. There's always assholes, um, you know, everywhere. But for the most part, I found like there, there's a lot more good people in tech than there are um, problem people. My dad, at an early age, like high school age, always said to me, Bill, there's always going to be an asshole in your life. There's, there's no way around it. Just don't let them win and don't let them get you discouraged. But there's always somebody in your life at some moment that, that's being that person. And just be aware of it and don't kind of get sucked into that like drama. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way to put it, right? And they're, they're yeah. going to attack you with what's easy to attack you with. So if you meet them, they're, they're going to attack you for being a woman. That's, you know, just how it is. It's the easiest thing to point out that's different. Okay. Our time is up. I cannot thank you enough for spending all this time with us talking about your uh, your journey and your career and, and the experiences that you've had. If Anybody wants to kind of reach out to you after listening to the podcast today, what's the, what's the best way for them to, to get to you? Uh, my LinkedIn. All right, so we'll get your LinkedIn on in the show notes. Um, and that, that's awesome. All right, so thank you again for, for being here. This is Bill Kennedy and Melissa Trebell uh, thanking you for spending the last hour with us and hope to see everybody again real soon.